Hey, hey, welcome to Brute Facts. So tonight we have uh, Ben with Real Atheology. Check out his YouTube channel and website, Real Atheology. Uh, all the descriptions links are below the video. We have Than from Exploring Reality, who's a new guest on the show. Ben is returning. And we are going to talk about a debate that Than had with another gentleman and the debate didn't go as expected. It wasn't um, as um, quality as it could have been. So we're going to talk about that tonight and go over some of the key points. Stick around. Thank you for everybody that's here. Uh, get ready for the show. Ben, welcome back. Than, welcome for the first time. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, Than, tell us a little bit about yourself, your channel, and what you aim to do. Yeah. Um, so my name's Than Christopoulos. My full name's Athanasios. Than came about because I was in a screamo band in high school, <laughs> um, and we were too lazy to put my full name on a CD cover. Um, and I started a nonprofit ministry called Exploring Reality, where uh, my really my goal is just to kind of teach Christians how to better defend their faith, argue for their faith, because I've noticed that a lot in the evangelical circles, a lot of people just tend to say some things that don't really <laughs> aid into the dialectic <laughs> at all. Um, and so that's just kind of my goal. Um, and yeah. Okay, cool. Ben? Uh Pretty sure a lot of my audience already knows who you are, but uh, a little bit about yourself and kind of what you aim to do. Um, yeah, so my name is Ben Watkins, and I live with my wife and daughter in Norfolk, Virginia, and I'm a host of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast, where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theistic perspectives. Um, and... We are looking to raise the level of discourse between theists and atheists, especially online. We feel like we're um, feeling a niche area, um, kind of, you know, an, an area of discourse that is lacking, um, where we take these questions seriously and we engage with theists charitably and really just kind of follow the latest developments in the philosophy of religion. We interview um, leading philosophers on both sides of the question of God's existence. And we explore question, you know, way, uh, models of religion that don't involve something like perfect being theism. So seeing what 
um, our concepts of religion can look like after we've discarded something like perfect being theism. All right. Uh, and being uh, Than does uh, fantastic work. Check his. I don't think I even mentioned his YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> he has a YouTube channel also exploring reality. Uh, he's done a few things on there. He's had a couple of interviews. He's had um, done some work on uh, the mythicism of Christ, the resurrection. He does pretty good stuff. And uh, Ben, both of these guys are friends and uh Ben's done fantastic work over at Real Atheology. Um, I've uh, been following him for quite a while. Pretty smart cat. So make sure you check his stuff out, too. Uh, <clears throat> so I guess we'll dive right into it. So this is um, for those who are a lot of people who didn't see the debate. Uh, Than had a debate about whether there is evidence for the existence of God, not whether God exists, but is there evidence? And I think um, a big part of the disconnect was what one considers evidence. And I think a lot of times that's where these debates kind of get muddled or we talk past each other. So uh, Ben's going to uh, share with us um work that he put together to kind of uh, explain some of these things a little better. So I'm going to, uh, let's see, Ben, I don't have your screen to share. I got you, buddy. Let me pull it up here. You should have it now. Okay. Here we go. All right. So let's see. Let's go to full screen layout here so it's easier to read. Um, okay, if you will. Uh, so is there evidence for theism? Uh, if you'll pick it up from there, Ben, and kind of give us an idea of your thoughts on this and um, kind of where you're going uh, with your direction. Um, yeah, so I think this would uh, the conversation would really benefit a lot if we just kind of thought of this as a debate review. And so to really just kind of recharacterize Than's position, you know, kind of the argument that he was putting on the table and then just kind of the different ways in which um, Mike either failed to interact with what was on, what was being offered or just kind of avoided, um, you know, you know, interacted, but in kind of super superficial ways. Um so I think we should, the, the best place to start is going to be with just the question, um, is there evidence for theism? So Than, walk me through your thought, pres thought process, why this question? Uh, so are you asking more specifically, like, why did we choose the, this debate topic? Yeah, yeah, what was your thought process behind it? Because I think, I, I, I really think that you, you've already kind of won the debate just by phrasing this question. So yeah. like, what were you going for? Um, with this question, why this question, uh, rather than some other question? Yeah. So I actually, when I, when I actually accepted the debate, um, offer from my opponent, I actually told him we can do the topic of is belief in God reasonable or rational. Um, so I was actually willing to take a higher burden of proof and he felt so strongly that there is no evidence for God that he wanted to do this instead. So I actually didn't even want to do this debate topic. So, so I think that's a really strong move, though. 
um, because it really puts a low burden of proof on your part um, just because you can kind of almost get, um, you know, as long as some probabilistic claim you can give reasons for saying is true in the absence of defeaters, you kind of have just have this argument on the, it's kind of follows almost trivially that there's yeah. evidence <laughs> um, for something. So I think, I think Mike's first mistake um, was even accepting the debate. <laughs> um, um, and what I mean by that is that the question that he wanted to um, try to answer was the wrong question. It's he should just already concede that there is some evidence for theism. And we'll get into that in a little bit into, you know, when we characterize your concept of evidence, what I want to get at here is that Mike should have, the question that should have been on the table is why is there something rather than nothing? Mm -hmm. Because this is what, you know, this is the sort of question that the cosmological argument is built around. Yep. And, you know, if you want to engage with that argument, you're going to offer your own um, answer to this question. And if you say, well, we just don't even have to answer that question or that's a meaningless question. That's itself an answer to the question. Yeah. Like, the question doesn't just go away. That's the most important, I think, central question. And so Mike didn't do himself any favors at this point in the debate by accepting this other question as the central, you know, you know like he just, he, he has an uphill, um, yeah, battle here. Like he's got to at this point refute, give you know at least some form of defeater for every probabilistic claim that comes up in favor of God's existence. And I think that's no. You just can exceed. There are some evidential considerations that can be evidence for theism. However, we're going to look at the total evidence, or yeah. we're going to you know, hey, we're going to look, we're going to step back and look at how world you know worldviews clash in here you know what are the theoretical virtues between um when we do it like a worldview comparison something like that that's yeah. that's the conversation i think you showed up to have yeah and well those who have watched the debate will know that that's not the conversation that that got had and i think a lot of that comes from mike's uh, acceptance of the debate in these terms rather than I think that terms that would have been more amenable to you anyways. It sounds like you wanted to have, like you didn't want yeah. to have this conversation of, well, is there evidence, uh, you know, for theism? That's not an interesting claim. You want to give an answer to why is there something rather than nothing and how that, you know, some answer to that question is a fact that is evidence for theism. Yep. That's the more interesting conversation to have. I think. Yeah. You just remind I, I all I could think of when <laughs> towards the end of that is Graham Oppie and his voice. Let's compare theories. Yeah, <laughs> just compare theories like something like that. You know, I feel like that's again like we get kind of praised for having this approach, but I think this is just kind of the bare minimum. Yeah, like this is just what you would have to do. Like I don't know what else you would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I'm with you, Ben. I I think it's such a low threshold. Um, you know, to to even deny that there's you know some evidence for theism yeah. just seems like a a hard position to defend. Uh, you know, because the basic question again, as you stated, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, mm -hmm. seems to you know possibly point to 
something other than the reality that we experience in a way. And I, I don't think that that was uh, a winnable debate for Mike, regardless of how um, strong he could have came. Because, you know, like you said, in the absence of at least, you know, some kind of undercutting defeater, you know, um, it just, how do you even defend that? <laughs> was It's kind of my question. That's it's just the I wrong was... hill to die on. Yeah. Right. I agree. That's why I was so Absolutely. surprised when he said, no, that's a dumb one to me. <laughs> so um, I think now would be a good time, Than, for you to kind of um, put your concept of evidence on the table. Why? Because I thought this is so this is to be honest with you. I'm this is why I uh, reached out to you is because when I saw your presentation on your concept of evidence, I was like, yes, this guy's. Like I've, I've been writing a lot on probability theory and how it relates to um, things like evidence. And I thought, I thought you were just, you were firing on all cylinders. <laughs> I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. <laughs> I'm like fangirling. <laughs> up, but <laughs> um, yeah. So do you just want me to just kind of go through the slides and kind of briefly go over what my conception yes, evidence please, was? Yes, please, please. Yeah, yeah. I think this is super important. Yeah. This is why... Mike chose the wrong hill to die on because he yeah. kept asking questions during the debate. Like, well, how's that evidence? Why well, don't Well, how's like, he would just say, you know, you, I think he re, re, uh, referred to, he was like, you know, well, if the universe has a cause, how is that evidence for theism? Yep. And I wanted to be, and I was, you know, looking at the screen going, he gave <laughs> you that answer. That's an answer <laughs> yeah. he gave you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, from a bird's eye view, my conception of evidence is just anything that raises the probability of um, a given theory. And so you can give a deductive arguments um, and all this other stuff. Uh, Mike's the kind of guy that says arguments are not evidence. And I kind of go through how you can actually test logical proofs, just like we can mathematical proofs. I gave examples here. Um, and then I went through the whole, I'm sure, I'm sure you're aware of what the gumball analogy, I mean, the jelly bean analogy is but i just kind of went through this and kind of showed how uh, a data point like an orange jelly bean here uh, in this instance would be evidence that we pulled out of jar two over jar one because orange is more expectable given the hypothesis of jar two um, and we can predict that we would pull more gel or orange jelly beans out of jar two than we would jar one and so i kind of formalized it towards the end too by putting it into kind of bayesian terms Is there anything else you wanted me to kind of hit on? Uh, no. Let let me share my screen now. Okay, y'all can see my screen. Um, I can now. Sweet. So I don't have a whole lot more to add to um Dan's characterization of evidence. Um. So the only thing that I would say um, is that I, you know, maybe it's my old fashioned simplistic ways of thinking from the enlightenment that I want to have kind of this simple principle that underlies my concept of evidence. And so I mm -hmm. think that principle is the law of likelihood. And so in the same vein as um, Dan, I want to say that we can understand evidence as any observation that probabilistically favors some proposition being true. 
And so that according to the law of likelihood, some observation is evidence for a hypothesis rather than another hypothesis. If the probability of the first hypothesis is greater than the probability of the observation given the second hypothesis. And so this is just straightforward yep. definition of conditional probability. Um, and so I think when you have this concept of evidence on the table, when someone asks as a question, meaning it to be in an objection, question is being put forward as you know kind of a reductio ad absurdum and they say how does the universe having a cause how is that evidence for theism the way that would be evidence for theism is the probability that the universe has a cause given theism is greater than the probability of the universe having a cause given not theism yeah. that's how like if that probability statement is true then it just follows that there is at least some evidence for theism, which is yep. why I think this is just the wrong hill to die on, right? Like we can offer defeaters for why, hey, maybe this isn't actually a piece of evidence. Or we can offer a defeater in the sense of, you know, hey, look, this evidence is outweighed by some other consideration. But he didn't do that. And I feel like you laid out your premises pretty clearly. And so I, I wanted to go over what I thought were the, the most critical ones, the ones in which, you know, like, hey, you're absolutely making this claim here and justifying this claim here. Mm -hmm. There are times when, at least from my observation of the debate, where, you know, Mike pressed you and said, you know, you haven't provided any justification for you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so claim. That's not, tr that wasn't true. Yeah, I was <laughs> really frustrated. It wasn't true. <laughs> you labeled them, like you numbered the premises. <laughs> um, yep. So walk us through kind of your um, formulation of the Kalam, and then we'll, I'll kind of go over the ways in which I see it from there. And, you know, because yeah. I don't, I, I, again, I'm not going to be able to improve a whole lot on the form. Yeah. Cool. So this is the Kalam that I used. It is, it's Loke's most recent formulation of it. Um, did you want me to read through all the Andrew Lokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so you don't have to, you know, obviously you don't have to read the whole thing. Yeah. Verbatim, but like just kind of the basic idea, just. Right. So pretty much it's just saying that there is a series of causes um, and events and that the event, chain of causes is either actually infinite or it's not, or the chain of causes is either a circular or it's not. I argue again, I argue that three and four are true, that it's not infinite and it's not circular. So we get to a first cause. Um, then I argue that the first cause would have to be initially changeless. Uh, nine is a really important one because I argue that the first cause would have to be, uh, would have to have some sort of agency. It'd have to be powerful um, and that's pretty much like the gist of it at, from a bird's eye view. Again, um, I argue for first cause. I argue that it have to be beginning uncaused, beginningless, initially changeless, has agency and be powerful. And kind of putting those together, I you know the conclusion is that if you put all those together, there's a creator of the universe. Eleven is true, therefore a creator of the universe exists. 
Okay, so let me share my screen now. Y'all can see it, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so this is broadly how I see um, Than's cosmological argument. So I, I see it divided into four stages, and whether or not there's a fourth stage or not might be we. It's something we can discuss. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think that the first stage of the Kalam cosmological argument is to establish that the universe, the totality of you know contingent things, um, is more likely finite than eternal. And that the second stage is that the finite universe is more likely has a cause than is uncaused. And that the third stage is that the cause of the finite universe is more likely personal and impersonal, and that a personal cause of the universe in stage four is more likely given theism than atheism. So if we look at how than defined theism in the beginning. His definition was that God is a metaphysically ultimate mind that is omnipotent and morally perfect. So it seems to me that there is this fourth stage yep. to um, Than's argument. Now, that doesn't have to necessarily be the case. Someone who's, you know, say a deist might say, you know, look, you know, there might be this personal cause of the universe, but that's not evidence for theism. So this is one way. So, you know, if Mike kind of had to take in the time to, you know, kind of understand the argument that you're putting forward and kind of see it as, you know, this broader case that you're trying to make, he might've seen this and been able to press back. Well, like, well, what are you trying to argue for? Are you just arguing for a personal first cause of the finite universe or are you arguing for perfect being theism and so it sounds Dan, i'll let you turn it over to you now you know like what was it that you were trying to make a case for yeah so i i made a mistake by putting in the omni properties in my definition of god um because i wasn't arguing for that that's a different argument that i'd put up um so that was just like a basic mistake that i made in my preparation for my debate notes but the for the, this version of the Kalam, my goal was really just to say there's a powerful first cause that's an, that's that's an agent behind the universe. So I want to now look at so th- there's a famous distinction in discussions about the problem of evil, known as the logical problem of evil and the evidential problem of evil. And so while I don't really think these distinctions are all that important like the soundness of the arguments i don't think really turn you know it's not an interesting feature this distinction however i do think that this distinction allows us to see the logic of different arguments Mm -hmm. much much clearer so most people are probably familiar with the kalam in a deductive form or what would we would call a logical form and so if you look at the, the document that I have here, I've kind of broken the logic out. So like if someone were to challenge Than's argument, say like, this argument is invalid. That's clearly not the right objection to be putting forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, it's, it's very easy to see um, how if we start with the case for the universe being finite rather than ter- eternal – if we say that the universe is finite rather than eternal, then the universe has a cause. It just straight follow, straightforwardly follows by modus ponens that the universe has a cause. And so I just do this with each step through those four stages. Nothing, to, But now, people like William Lane Craig and Than, you might make a similar move. They say, you know, well, with a deductive argument, all you have to establish is that the premises are more likely than their negations. 
Well, so that's going to put us in kind of this evidential form. What does it yep. mean for something to be more probable than its negation? Well, it turns out that Than gave us an answer to this question when he characterized evidence probabilistically. Wow. <laughs> and so that's what I try to do here with it, kind of my inductive formulation of the Kalam. And so we can see how the Kalam has an evidential form that follows these four stages. So if you accept these four stages, you get to the claim that there is a fact that is evidence in a probabilistic sense for theism over atheism. Now, whether or not that's decisive or not, this argument doesn't give you an answer. A deductive one would. Yep. Deductive one would settle that question. But we're probably more, and Than, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Than's giving more the more modest case in that, look, we have, so he gave an a priori argument for the finitude of the past. And so if you accept that, and then you accept the causal principle that he appealed to. I think it was his premise three. Yep. Yep. Our, uh, no, yeah, it was yeah. premise uh, seven. 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 Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Premise seven. He appeals to it there. If you accept that premise, then it follows here. <laughs> yep. If you accept that this cause has, you know. This is where I think the argument is weakest in these steps. Yep. I think that it's strongest in these steps and it's weakest in these steps. If you lay it out in this way, you we can have a very productive conversation. Um, but it's, it's very obvious, I think, from this that the objection of, well, how is it evidence for theism? The objection that's meant to be implied by asking that rhetorical question falls flat. Yeah. No, you, you hit it on, hit the nail on the head. Um, the way I view everything that I believe is true. Like I'm a, I'm a probabilist, I Bayesian comp confirmation theories. Um, so you hit it right, right on the head. So the, the other move that, um, I couldn't help but laugh at, um, and I'm not entirely sure I understand it. So perhaps, uh, Mike will do a response video to this and help explain it to me better. But he basically, once we got to this step right here, mm -hmm. um, he was willing to say, you know, the universe is finite and has a cause, but the cause is impersonal rather than personal. And so I don't disagree with this move in principle. I would make a similar move. However, his premises were, that the alternative hypothesis was an eternal artichoke, <laughs> and that somehow Occam's razor comes into play to shave off an assumption. I'm not sure what assumption Occam's razor is shaving off here. <laughs> um, and again, I, I, I'm really, truly, honestly not trying to misrepresent mm -hmm. Mike. And so maybe there's just something deeper here that I'm missing. No, that's, that's clearly what was said. And so I, I wanted to kind of put this in there. There are such a misunderstanding of Occam's razor. Um, you know, it, it's, we don't multiply entities beyond the need and it's just the principle of parsimony. It would seem that the mo more 
parsimonious explanation would be a better explanation. It doesn't follow that it's true, but it just seems it would be intuitionally a better explanation than complicating it. And to put a magic artichoke in there and give it all of these different properties seems to violate the very principle he was trying to skirt. So what what I think was happening, and so this is me kind of speculating, so take take that for what it's worth, is that um, the magic artichoke was really a placeholder for a naturalistic theory that Mike did not under did not have either because you know he didn't understand it or because he's just not familiar. <laughs> With the naturalistic alternatives mm-hmm. for an impersonal cause of the universe, something like Graham Oppie yeah. um, would put forward, because it it seemed like he just kind of kept appealing to different authorities, um, people like Sean Carroll. Some I I don't get me wrong, I have tremendous respect for Sean Carroll, um, but I don't I have agree. much respect for a rule for moves such as. You know, just saying quantum mechanics. You know, just like as some response. Well, well, quantum mechanics says. Okay, okay. that's <laughs> that's it. There's there's clearly some very difficult cosmology and even more difficult, you know, fundamental physics at the bottom of all this. And just saying terms like quantum mechanics doesn't really kind of you know doesn't really get you out of this unless you have something more to say here. And I just don't think he had that something more to say. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's just that's again people in my camp I, I cannot stress this enough like this is just the part where you say you know i just don't know yep. and that's not going to be a blow if you don't accept a discussion in which the question is is there evidence for theism yeah <laughs> well uh, not only that appealing to quantum mechanics is literally appealing to the study of the quantum i mean what what, what which interpretation is supposed to be the undercutting defeater which uh, well, you know, it's, it's very nebulous. So when you say that, you know, like, so I think you correct me if I'm wrong, Than, you know, Than was saying, you know, I gave an argument for why there cannot be an infinite past series of events. And Mike's response was something along the lines. And obviously I'm paraphrasing. So if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong, please correct me in the comments. Um, you know, he said something along the lines, no, the unit, you know, we, the, we can have an eternal universe because quantum mechanics, that's insufficient. He, he might be right. There might be something about quantum mechanics. I think there's something about quantum mechanics that's right. But like you have to, you have to say something more. If you're yeah. going to engage with the argument. You have to say, what is it about quantum mechanics that helps us understand the argument that Than is putting forward? I don't think at, at no point, at no point that I could discern in that discussion did might give any sort of substantive interaction or um, the term I'm really liking right now that I've got from the classical theist podcast is, you know, the clash between arguments, you know, that there's these two views, you know, there's either the arguments on Mike's side versus the arguments on Than's sides or the, or Mike's worldview versus Than's worldview clashing with each other, interacting with each other. That just didn't happen. I just, I didn't see that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pretty. That's pretty much. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Um, more specifically, he just kept on saying that there were models of the universe that show that they could be past infinite, and 
And then I said, well, the thing that got me was when he asked me, well, are you saying you know more than cosmologists? And I was like, well, no, I'm not saying that. But <laughs> So uh, I don't I don't know what to say about those moves. I don't I don't want to psychologize. Uh, yeah. Apologize his motiva- motivations because I, I don't know him. I don't know what they are. Um, but I do know that as far as a dialectical is concerned, if we're trying to understand these arguments better, it just wasn't the right move. So I want to I, turn the tables is not the right phrase, but that's the phrase that comes to my mind. Turn the tables a little bit here and say, what was the objection that you were most prepared to try to answer? Because from what I got from the debate, it was mereological nihilism. It seemed like you kind of like in your opening statement, you were like, in, in anticipation of a move, you had arguments against mirological nihilism, but then it in the actual debate itself didn't really seem like he defended yeah. sort of mirological nihilism. What was the objection that you was that the objection that you came um, um, prepared to try to address, or you know maybe it was you know arguments are not evidence. I'm I'm, I'm sorry about that trope. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you had something to say to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, those were the two big ones that I prepared for, like that I anticipated from him because I've seen his past debates. Because um, when I finally accepted the debate, the debate with him, I spent a few hours studying his past debates, his videos, and all this other stuff. Um, and so the two big ones that he always mentions were arguments are not evidence and meological nihilism against the causal principle. But then I also um, I sent you the slides, and then I don't know if you looked through them, but then. An, for instance, with my arguments against traversing an actual infinite, I had objections that Oppie, Morriston, Malpass, and some others have made against that argument. Um, and I made, I think, like six, five slides in anticipation that might, um, just in case Mike would have done some studying on some of these things. But there's a lot of, uh, like, there's a lot of different things that I prepared for, but those were the two big ones. Those are the two big ones. Um, gotcha. So... Um, for those listening, um, when it comes to cosmological arguments in general, um, and this is especially people from my camp, um, the major objections to these arguments are not that arguments are not evidence, <laughs> nor is it that you have to kind of go all in on mirological nihilism. Now, the question of, you know, what is the true view of parts and holes? The myriology is the study of parts holes. Um, I can just be entirely agnostic about in this discussion. And nothing would turn on that. Than would still, that like, Than's argument would still be on the table. Um, now, I think that the most serious objection to cosmological arguments and teleological arguments in general is what's known as the gap problem. So Mm -hmm. there's this idea that we have to get from personal cause of the universe to perfect being. And that something like a cosmological argument or a teleological argument cannot, in principle undercut an argument from evil. And so that if you're putting the two arguments on the table, the argument from evil is going to always outweigh yep. 
because of, and so to me, that's the, the most pressing problem for this argument because you can accept it in its entirety, except for the final move. If I go back to my right here, this move right here, yep. the idea that it's the probability that the personal cause of the universe is a perfect being is greater than if it was not a perfect being. And so if we're construing, so there's another distinction I should make here. Um, atheism in a narrow sense and atheism in a wide sense. So atheism in a narrow sense is just going to deny perfect being theism. Whereas atheism in a wide sense is going to deny gods in general. It's going to deny not only perfect being theism, but things like theism and or deism and panentheism and polytheism. But so generally what's taken in these discussions is, is one about narrow theism. It's about the denial of perfect being theism. So this is why I said at the beginning, this is where, you know, Than can avoid this move very easily by just not defining theism as perfect being theism, by just sticking to this wider theistic conception where the problem of evil has no bite. So I, I don't want to ramble too much. So I'll let Than. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's, that's my favorite part of this, the conversations really. It's that theory comparison at that point. Like what's the probability <laughs> with all these different arguments that we have with divine hiddenness, the tele I think teleological suffering for me is like one of the scariest arguments. Um, so yeah. With, uh, with the gap problem. <laughs> You know, if we were going to put that on the table, what would be your go-to kind of response? Well, before we get there, I, I I was interested in one of the things you guys were talking about. I didn't want to get too far away from it. Oh, you're fair. Uh, you're good. You're good. Uh, uh, on muriological nihilism, how does um, muriological nihilism affect causality? Um, is... I understand it's, uh, you know, they're really the parts to a whole is all that exists, not the whole itself. Is it um, just that denying these relations is what affects the causal principle? So... I can speculate. Uh, Than, do you have something to say? I'll have a speculation. Oh, so. yeah. This is, I mean, this is speculation as well for me because, um, but from the way I see it, if you deny any sort of comp composition, then all there is is mereological symbols and it thereby follows that nothing actually begins to exist unless you want to call arrangements of particles something that begin to exist. But, right. Um, okay. That's just that's, the way I see it. Yeah, I was um, I was interested in that aspect. And um, for for those in the audience who's not familiar with muriological nihilism, uh, it, it's pretty um, hard to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with it. So we won't try <laughs> to explain it here. Uh, but I still is, can't wrap my head around. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, that. So we'll move on and, and get it back into the substance of uh, the rest of the argument. Well, I am really curious. Which is why I said what that it's you know said. you don't have we don't you know if someone who's skeptical of this argument doesn't have to go all in on mirological nihilism. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just it seems to be a move that I've seen a few people make. Uh, so that's why I was 
kind of interested in because I mean, at the end of the day, it just seems with muriological nihilism, we're just saying that there's, you know, these simples, these fundamentals, and we're just kind of uh, assuming that they exist as just, you know, fundamentals. And I guess when, I guess the, you we would have to argue why they don't, you know, just foundationally or fundamentally exist would be the position that one would have to argue against. What were you going to say about that, Ben? Yeah. So um, I would want to say again, let me pull it back. Y'all can see my screen, right? Yep. So this, this last claim um, actually, no, I, so I've said something about this claim with um, the gap problem. Um, so to say something about this claim, um, that the universe is finite and has a cause is more likely given a personal cause than an impersonal cause. Um, I think that there are naturalistic alternatives Mm -hmm. here that, so in other words, I think that we can concede the argument up until this point and we really at, to this point, like I'm not, you know, I have my own skepticisms about these moves. What I'm saying is, you know, for the sake of argument, we can suppose that these moves work. But then once we get to this move, there are some other, I think, very plausible naturalistic alternatives um, on the table. And so I'm not saying that I know that this view is true because I don't. I'm not a cosmologist. And there's obviously um, people much smarter than me that are working on these problems and I consider my um, area of expertise in moral philosophy, not cosmology. So I'm not going to (laughs) pretend to know more than I do in these areas. Um, But I would plug um, Alyssa Nay's latest book, um, The World in the Wave Function. Real quick, Ben, can you uh, verbalize for the podcast audience who's only going to hear the audio um, what the move that you're talking about now? Yes. Um, So the move, let me just start from the beginning to just kind of trace out what's happening here, because that's a very good point. I've kind of been leaning on these visuals here. Um, So for the people that are listening um, and don't have the luxury of these visuals, um, the first claim here is that there are facts about Big Bang cosmology or there are a priori mathematical arguments to the conclusion that the universe is finite rather than eternal. And so that the fact that the universe is finite is more likely given the, that the universe has a cause than if the universe was uncaused. And so that's the famous principle, you know, whatever begins to exist has a cause is, you know, kind of the famous principle um, that underlies that move. And so what you end up with in this third stage of the Kalam is that the universe is finite and has a cause and that that's cause is probably personal rather than impersonal. And so I want to challenge that probabilistic claim and say that, that no, there are impersonal um, causal models of a finite universe um, that don't, that are, that, that, you know, are just as plausible And so 
the one that I want to, you know, just kind of offer up right now is Alyssa Nay's model from the world is in the wave function. Um, it's also similar to Jill North's um, the structure of a quantum world. It's a paper um, for those who are interested in kind of reading more about this. And so this view doesn't really have a name. And so I've just been calling it a temporal um, wave function monism. And so this is the view that the most fundal, fundamental concrete thing that exists is the universal wave function of quantum mechanics. And that all other phenomena in the causal domain emerge from this universal wave function. And so that every possible state of the universe is actual. Um, the universal wave function is the wave function or quantum state of the totality of existence. And it's regarded as the basic physical entity or the fundamental entity um, that at all times is obeying a deterministic wave equation. And so on this view, the universal wave function is necessary. Um, it's timeless um, since wave functions don't uh, have space-time variables in them. Um, this uh, wave function is purely actual. Um, it's spaceless and it's sui generis, meaning it's uncaused. But there's another feature about this universal wave function that I think is very important here. It's not personal. It's indifferent to the nature and condition of sentient life in the universe. And so this is a model that not only we can concede all these steps in the Kalam cosmological argument, but also does not conflict with the conclusion of an argument from evil. We would say that the universe is more likely indifferent to the, to suffering than it is that there's this perfectly loving being that cares about the well-being of sentience. And so that's what I would say. So the, the first objection um, that I laid for was the gap problem that challenged this premise well, the, the second objection would want to challenge this move here and say that, no, there's this atemporal universal wave function monism view that we can have on the table that can concede these moves here, but block this move to a personal being. So just to sum it up, it's, it's the... Uh inductive part of getting to the personal creator yes uh, i'm not i'm not offering what's yeah. called a rebutting defeater here right i'm not right, saying that right. like oh, look hey this view is true and that's why this other view is false i'm saying look this is another this is what's called an undercutting defeater yep it's right. meant to cast doubt on this probability judgment here so that's be, all uh, that that's all that this is meant to do. This yep, doesn't require me to say, you know, like I have to prove that, you know, I have to put forward some sort of proof. Um, I don't have to appeal to some sort of scientific con consensus. Just say, look, this is a model that could go yep. on the table that is an undercutting defeater. And it engages. It engages with the argument as it is um, in its most modest yet strongest form. Does she does she interact with um the uh field you know fields being the fundam fundamental part of reality uh is that something that you know we would go further and say if uh the wave function collapses or the wave function 
uh, is fundamental, wouldn't the fields be even more fundamental or does she even uh, address that? Uh, yeah. So she says that the universal wave function um, is the basic physical entity. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So Graham Oppie has a similar view um, and Felipe Leone have a similar view where it's, this is the initial state of the universe and the initial state okay. of the universe is necessary. And so this universal wave function, what it describes, this is a law of nature and everything follows from this universe. And now, so the natural question to ask right now is, well, what does this universal wave function look like? And so like, that's the weakness of this view, this view. We don't have a quantum theory of gravity yet. We don't have a unifying theory of quantum mechanics and general relativity. And because we don't have that unifying theory yet, we can only speculate about what that universal wave function looks like. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I would also cast doubt on the idea, you know, we, we might like, we might be tempted to think that we can rule out an infinite universe a priori by just sitting in our armchairs. Um, but I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Um, I'm skeptical of those arguments because I think what we're going to have to do is kind of the you know the really deep cosmology yep. that the theoretical cosmology that's happening at something like CERN um, that's you know establishing the basic you know the standard model of particle physics for us, we're going to have to do something like that in order to determine whether the universe as a whole the totality of contingent things is infinite or finite and I just don't think anyone really knows right now right. that's kind so, of that's yeah, kind of, I hate that. There's yeah, no part. No, no. There's no part of me that likes saying that out loud. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I think the, the but the overarching theme here is while it's not an undercutting defeater, it's a rebutting defeater. So now we need a symmetry breaker. You know exactly. Why, yep. Yeah. Why, why would we take? And that's the conversation we were trying to have. That's the conversation yeah. that well, we were trying to have. That's the conversation <laughs> Than was trying to have. Right. <laughs> that was the kind of tra- conversation I showed up to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what is the symmetry breaker? Why would we when we have a uh, a decent rebutting, you know, defeater for it, what's what is it to choose one over the other? So yep. um, But I but I also don't think that it, it it's it's a cost to skeptics or naturalists to just say so this is a an an evidential chip. I'll I'll go ahead and leave my cards on the table. I think does favor theism that I think that if you that Hey, if the datum is that the universe is finite, then that's at least some. Like, granted, there's these four stages. There's a lot of moves in there, so I'm not going to say this is strong evidence, but I'll at least concede that it's weak evidence. Mm-hmm. Or, but I think there's stronger um, datum. So this is this is where I would criticize Than in that I think that because he agreed <laughs> to the question, is there evidence for God? Just use a, a datum that's easier. You know, that doesn't have four stages. Yeah. You know, appeal to something like moral agency or religious experience. Ah, oh, dude, do religious experiences. So like, I, I wanted to, but anytime yeah. I've ever talked to him about that kind of stuff, he just kind of pulls the, um, how would you just, I don't know what how, how to describe it. Uh, oh, you think your hallucinations were evidence of your God stuff, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I wanted to try to avoid that rhetorical battle as much as I could, because that's why right. I hate debates. <laughs> so I, I think the, the strongest, so if I were put my theist cap and put myself yeah, yeah. in your shoes, 
I would appeal to moral agency. And I would say, look, the probability of observing a moral agent given theism is one. Because <laughs> God is a moral agent. Yeah. <laughs> it, theism literally entails a moral agent. All right. Theism, naturalism does not entail moral agents. It just doesn't entail. Now, you might say, oh, no, look, they're really probable in naturalism. They're like really, really, really probable in naturalism. Even if that were the case, it doesn't entail them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just always like, and there's a famous principle that I think is really important that gets overlooked a lot in the probability ca calculus called the weak anthropic principle. So the weak anthropical pr principle basically just says, look, we have to account for the fact that we are observers in the universe and that the universe is compatible with observers. And so that that's old evidence. Mm -hmm. That's part of our background data is that the universe is compatible with observers. So what does that mean? Well, it means that consciousness doesn't favor either naturalism or theism because the weak anthropic principle entails conscious observers mm -hmm. however the weak anthropic principle does not entail that these observers are moral agents yeah so one of the strongest objections to teleological arguments here just doesn't even apply to moral agents so if if your burden is only to establish that there is a consideration that favors theism over naturalism moral agency is the easiest one because it gets you there in one step. Yeah. That one step is super difficult to avoid. Yep. <laughs> well, but then wouldn't you have to at least justify the position in, moral real, in the more realist position? Yep. Sure. So, fine. So if someone I, says, you know, like, there are no, like, that's one way to avoid it. Like, there just are no moral agents. Okay. Well, now the conversation has shifted yep. to. Now the question turns on, is it more possible that there are more agents or not moral agents? I think the moral skeptic loses that dialectic. Yeah, I do too. Um, that was an, but that's a really good point. I've tried in the past, I've given him arguments for moral realism and uh, they, were, they were just always straw manned. And... So it's, my claim also does not assume moral realism. My well, I guess it does in one. So it assumes that there is something like intrinsic value, mm -hmm. and that there are agents that make morally significant decisions, um, or that you know I don't think this is a datum, but other people do. Um, libertarian free will. Mm -hmm. You know, if more if liber if moral agency implies libertarian free will, libertarian free will is more likely on theism than naturalism. Mm -hmm. That's just another way in which yeah. moral agency um, favors theism instead of naturalism. And so I just I, I, I think that if you were to ask me, like, what is the strongest argument for theism? I'm going to point to that one every time. Yeah, because it just there are no good dialectical moves for the naturalist other than to just bite the bullet and say, look, OK, this is an evidential chip that falls in favor of theism. However, there are these other evidential chips. Yep. That's not the end of the story. And, and that's OK. Like, it's OK yeah. for skeptics to just concede that, you know, like, look. There, there can be evidence like all the evidential chips don't have to fall in your camp. The yep. reality is just more complex than that. Yeah, it's not that it's not that clean and neat.
And that's a well, that's a very good point because one of the things that I I try to um, hammer home over and over again is theism or non-theism is abductive. It's which pieces of evidence do you think falls for theism and which pieces do you think falls for uh, non-theism? And at the end of the day, when we weigh all these pieces, it usually people just they err on the side of what's more plausible to them or what they're you know convinced of. That's why I don't think that atheism itself is irrational because mm-hmm. I think it's an abductive case. It's what's more plausible to you, given these different pieces of evidence that could go either way. For for yeah. anyone who's familiar with my my work, you'll they'll know that I'm I'm very fond of saying exactly you know what what Eddie just said you know to to, to echo it is that you know um, to just dispense with things like burdens of justification and just let evidential chips fall where they may. Um, that's the right you know we should let evidential chips fall where they may and then proportion our beliefs to the evidence. That's um, that's just kind of the basic guiding intuition. Um, that I use in the philosophy of religion. And I don't know, maybe I'm naive. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's no, some no, no. just really weird trick with artich- artichokes and Occam's <laughs> razor that I just don't get. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. And I, you know, uh, I would be one of the first to admit, you know, the two huge chips in the equation is divine hiddenness and the mm-hmm. evidential problem of evil that, um, and suffering. I, those are, I still struggle as yeah. a theist with those, those two. are the big chips. I think those are the yeah. big chips on the one side, but then I think there are other chips elsewhere right. kind of scattered in there. But to, yeah. to my mind, those are the two really, really big ones yeah. that, you know, I, I, I think yeah. people really struggle with them, not only intellectually, but also existentially. Yeah. I think yeah. people really struggle with the bad things that happen in the world. And I think people really struggle with what seems to be God's silence. Yeah. yeah. And well, in talking about the evidence to kind of put it in a Bayesian analysis or form, you know, every bit of evidence counts mm-hmm. and every bit of evidence adds up. You know, even if it's a small evidence, we still have, you know, different chips of evidence, as you said, that can accumulate to a point where, you know, one hypothesis just seem, just uh, appears to be more plausible than the other. It doesn't have to have uh well we have super evidence here and no super evidence over here so the super evidence wins out it's it's an accumulative case yep i i fancy myself these days as something of a hegelian um and so you know you know i wasn't gonna be able to have this conversation without a, yeah, hegel's Hegel. got to come up at least <laughs> yeah, come up somewhere i i apologize but i don't apologize um <laughs> um so one of Hegel's um, themes that you find through is through is that um, the history of knowledge, the progression of human knowledge is not a series of weighing all the theories and then saying, okay, I can cast this philosophy aside. I can cast this philosophy aside. And here's the one true philosophy. Um, Hegel understands knowledge much more dynamically than that. And saying that the, tensions and the battles that have happened between competing views over time are still important so that there's a lot to be gleaned. Even if we don't think 
some argument works on one side of a debate. Just the very discussion that's being had between these two competing views, each side of those views gets something right. And so that we have to do, to use the, 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 the Hegelian jargon, we have to sublate these disagreements and take away what's true about both of them and let fall away what is false about them. And so what this means is that we, we can't just, it's, it's not a matter of just adding up all the theor- theories and then picking the one true theory mm-hmm. and saying that all the others are false. No, you're going to have to get something from each one. Yep. Something's there. There, something important is gotten with each within each of those perspectives. Yeah. Um, but that's a Hegelian theme. It's again, it can be controversial. A lot of people don't, but I think it's right. I think that there's something fundamentally right that the progression of human knowledge is just standing on each other's shoulders. And yep. you know, as people fall away, there are some people left standing on other people's shoulders, and so you can just you can eventually see higher and higher and higher, but there's, there's huge, like I do not agree with classical theism. Like I think classical theism is just straight up incoherent and false. However, I have learned a ton <laughs> from studying classical theism. Like I just cannot begin to t- tell, to, to emphasize the metaphysical tools that I've gotten in my tool bag and, and, you know, the distinctions that I can draw now, the language games that I can participate in by just studying classical theism. And it's made my own model, my own world worldview building that much richer. Yep. Yeah. I was uh, I actually the other day was just going through um, Hegel's dialectics and uh, he is man. He's terrible to read. I just, yeah, it's, it's, he's awful. He's awful. Just, just the worst to read. And I get that. And what's even more infuriating, it'll make you even more mad is that it's deliberate. Like that he wants you, like there's actually a method to the madness. Like yes. he makes you think about his own writing in a way that makes his method more obvious. And so you can't get his methodology unless you just struggle with how he writes. So it's deliberate. That To me, that makes it worse yeah that's he's i I started with the problem of the one and the many and ended up in dialectics (laughs) and i was just my head hurt i i'm not exaggerating to people either like when i first tackled the phenomenology of spirit i mean i really tackled like (laughs) i read i poured over that book for like a year and i mean like 11 months 12 months like pretty much a year like before you know i had gotten over like the decoding process and yeah. again i'm getting carried away i'm talking about he- hegel too yeah, i was gonna say we, we we could spend the next week yeah I, i'm using up, i'm using hegel. up fans i'm using up fans <laughs> no time. no no i i i'm just here to soak in i'm just here to soak in all the knowledge from you guys so that's it so uh so back to where we were um the uh, uh there's uh uh so you have a competing hypothesis, a naturalistic competing hypothesis. Um, and as we, I think we all agree that the debate should have been the symmetry breaker between those uh, competing hypotheses. Is there uh, any other parts of the debate that you, um, that really stuck out to you? Ben? Um, yeah. So, 
I, I guess I would take a little bit of issue with what you just said in that, um, that what you said is true. If you assume that that's the question that they should have been, yeah, um, fair discussing yeah. is that, you know, is there any evidence for, for theism that, 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 that yeah, that's, that's a similar. However, I thought that the better question to ask would be, why is there something rather than nothing? Yep. Right. And so then I think at that point, what you're going, since we both have speculative, um, views on the table, um, we'd have to have kind of like a gram oppie discussion yeah. where we try start to weigh the theoretical virtues and vices of each view. Yep. Unfortunately, I, you know, I don't think we're going to come to any determinate um, agreement here. You know, we're not going to be able to resolve all of our disagreements here. Yeah. However, I think that we can have a super substantive discussion. Yeah. Um, and, it, and again, I think that at the end of the day, if that switching back to that other question of, is there evidence for the, like, I think you just concede that. I think you just say, yes, there is evidence for theism and don't die on the hill that there is no evidence for theism. <laughs> yeah. so, so like we could say like is there this symmetry breaker you know the, the debate should have been about the symmetry breaker between these two views no 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 <laughs> Mike's strongest move was to just concede <laughs> there is some evidence for theism that was his strongest move that's just not the move he agreed to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in the discussion of the debate I think he would have had an easier time tackling something you know a bigger question like mm -hmm. why is there something rather than nothing because yep. at that point you're putting two you're you're putting two views that are roughly on equal footing and you're just trying to see what comes you're letting them clash you're letting yep. the arguments do all the work yep you're there not to defeat um the other person or you know use an argument like a weapon you're yep. there to try to resolve disagreement and grow and learn and make progress that's what the right answer looks like. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Like what, what I'm not saying that Eddie was wrong. Like what Eddie is saying is right. <laughs> given that you're <laughs> that, that Mike's made these other really bad moves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, so I even, I tried to, we ran out of time, but I gave him like a Rasmussen argument from limits. Um, and then we ran out of time. That would have been my Let's next move. I don't think I don't think that those like that argument. I just, I, I this sounds really bad. And again, I don't know Mike, but I think that just you, like I don't think he even understood the main thesis of something like Josh Rasmussen's argument from arbitrary yeah. limits. Like I just like that's just something that's not like <laughs> I'm pretty sure he doesn't understand how a modal collapse works either. Just like he doesn't understand, he just doesn't understand yeah. that 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 argument either. Like, yeah. just, he's not familiar with them, and that's not an objection against it. You know, not everyone can be familiar with everything all the time. Yeah, that's totally fine. Subject. I don't expect everybody to just, just admit that. Yeah, <laughs> just like I'm happy to admit that, like if you and I were to enter this kind of a conversation, it'd be a student to teacher one, <laughs> and I'm happy or with that. Just being able to admit that, like, hey, like you know, we can have these conversations and disagreements but yeah i'll just i'll just concede that if the universe is finite that's some evidence for theism over yeah. like i don't think you've dealt any serious blows to naturalism i think you've only done all that you've done is be more modest in the claims that you're making and you've progressed the conversation that you're having further by just increasing the common ground you have and having more having more interesting discussions
Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as bad as, you know, well, the definition of atheism is the lack of belief. That's the really, that one really sucks when you can't get past the definition of the terms. <sighs> I usually just that, concede to that and move on. That's, it's, I do too. I don't, it's not a hill sucks. to die on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, there's a term for that. It's called lack theism. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, we we won't go into propositions and their negations and yeah. burdens and <laughs> so. Um, was there uh, Than? Did you have any questions for Ben about anything that you presented that he might uh, could give you uh, a different idea about? Yeah, um, I just anything that you think like. Oh, like I told you, Ben, I have I, I have like severe imposter syndrome. <laughs> so all I saw was the flaws in my debate. <laughs> so, um, but I am, but I'm also the kind of person that just I'm never really happy with where I'm at. I want to keep growing and learning. Um, so, what like to you? What were the biggest flaws that you saw in the debate from me? Hmm. I want to say the biggest one. So I so I wouldn't say that your flaws came in your technical presentation. I would say that your flaws came in kind of the, there were certain moves that you let him but he he kind of baited you into. And you mm-hmm. kind of took that bait and kind of ran off with and you just didn't need to. Yeah. And I'm trying there's there's one I'm, I haven't watched the debate in a couple of days now and I'm trying to remember the specific example I had in mind. Yeah, he bit on a couple of red herrings, and that was one of the things that I had told him beforehand, you know, because I've debated Mike before, and he's going to bring up things that's not pertinent to the debate. And yeah. if you follow him down that rabbit trail, uh, it's uh, he, he tried yeah. to burden shift. Well, obviously, the big one was um, the magic artichoke. So like you just like obviously shutting that <laughs> silly objection down quickly and decisively can be hard in the moment to do like just it's hard to just do. Yeah. Um I've ever spent I feel like a lot of time was spent on that part when you could have just continually dismissed it just been like no that's it's not analogous. You were hitting you were hitting on it or around it too. Like I don't want to like sound like yeah. you were just, you were missing this mark at all because you were you know, look you're just you know you're using a concept of God and you're just calling it a magic artichoke. Yeah. Like <laughs> um so right. that, you, you were hitting around you were you like that's exactly how you have to approach that. You have to just yeah. kind of dismiss it. It's just being like, like no this this is this isn't really a serious response to what I'm trying to say and it's it's certainly not a serious cosmological model. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's I haven't seen the artichoke hypothesis before. I was kind of uh uh it, it seemed to be just another variation of the flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. You know, and, and you mimic it at some point that the law of identity is going to step in and it's gonna be, you know, you're literally talking about what I'm Same presenting thing. as God. Yeah. And you're just calling it a different name. That's it. Yeah. So uh, I think it was William Lane Craig that had said, well, fantastic. We agree. God exists. Yeah. You're just calling him something different. <laughs> and I think those parodies, and I understand where, where Mark Mike was going with it 
looking for, you know, a hypothesis naturalistically that could be competing. I just think it miserably failed. Yeah. I would, I love those theory, like those theory comparison to conversations where you compare the ontology, the virtues, the simplicity, all this other stuff. Um, the clash in those, those discussions is really good between the yeah. arguments. Like you really get to go deep um, into what it is. And it's, it really requires this rich concept of evidence that you sketched yeah. out too. And that just, it's very clearly that clear that um, at least by my observation that, that, that Mike just wasn't, he just didn't have that concept. It just wasn't the concept that he was, he was working with. Um, and you could just ask it, but you know, but the rhetorical questions that he was asking, well, how is that evidence? Or how is that evidence? And I just, just sitting there hitting my head going, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, the worst part. He defined his terms. He literally did it all right. Like he did, like he gave an opening. <laughs> the worst part that got me was because I asked him, like, I didn't expect him to have my premises memorized. Um, but I asked him what was premise nine in my arguments. And then eventually he admitted, well, I don't know. It was a boring opening. It's not, yeah. that's not, that doesn't help. That's yeah, so yeah. unhelpful. <laughs> well, when somebody has all those slides and they're going through them and the other person's not even writing, um, I think that kind of gives you uh, an idea of where it's going to go. But I knew where it was going to go to begin with. I debated it, but we debated on the contingency and he remember that. literally didn't even in, interact with the argument. I mean, just went straight to something else and it was an argument he agreed on I, so and i made it as bare bones as possible i was almost embarrassed at what i presented as an argument because i knew he wasn't going to prepare but well, um, hopefully yeah. he sees this and hopefully he can take some uh constructive criticism criticism from it because again you know bikes in my camp um yeah. you know i'm yeah, not you trying want to, him to do better yeah i'm not trying to tear him down um right. and i'm not trying to you know make fun of him um, but I do want to, you know, it's, it, this is one of those things that's frustrating to me in my own camp is that, um, I think sometimes people's egos, um, get the better of them yeah, and they I end up it. in situations. Uh, I, I compare it a lot to martial arts. Um, yeah. so there are levels to martial yeah. arts. And so if you try to pretend to be in a level that you're not in, you can get embarrassed very quickly. Yep, you're get exposed. That's <laughs> you right. You get and exposed it's... very, very quickly, especially I train jujitsu. And so, like, if you're a white belt and you try to pretend to be a purple belt, you're going to have a bad time. Yep. Um, right. But well, philosophy... and it all depends on where you got your white belt and purple belt. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, philosophy is different, but it's the same in the sense there are levels to it. But the consequences for pretending to be at a level that you're that are not as immediately obvious as they are in martial arts. Um, you know, people, you know, rhetoricians, you know, people can yeah. just go out there. Dan was an MMA guy. He, he knows, yeah. uh, he knows exactly how you can get embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but there, there just isn't a, an analog in philosophy right. other than, you know, kind of, you know, what we would call like, you know, the hitch slap or, yeah. you know, yeah. some, you know, uh, well, philosophy I, is, taught me i don't know what i thought i knew gosh and when yeah. i think yeah. when i think the more i, I learn it, yeah uh, it's so bad <laughs> i used to be like if you were to ask me because uh, i became a christian about like five years ago and if you were to ask me even just last year how confident are you in your christianity i'd be like oh 100 it's a fact it's a whoa right yeah and i'm just like 
yeah, probably like 70 to 90%. It depends on any given day. Sometimes, like I said, the scariest argument to me is teleological suffering. Like that killed me sometimes. And so that modesty just has to be there. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, that's the humbling um, part of philosophy. And it's all, there's a parallel there with martial arts too. You know, yep. <laughs> start martial arts and it'll humble you really quick. When you get tapped out by a five, three, you know, girl that's, you know, all of 90 pounds soaking wet, you'll be like, Hey, wow. That's, that, that's, I, had, I had a situation like that. <laughs> that's what got me into jujitsu. It's a humbling experience. A, very humbling I experience. To, I went to a free class with a friend and uh, I was in my twenties and a 16 year old kid had me in an arm bar and tapped out in like five seconds. And I was like, Holy crap. I want to learn this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it'll definitely humble you. It's that's for sure. Uh, so we're going to wrap it all up. Um, I, I don't want anybody to take away from this. This is not a, a mic slam session. It's about the debate. He was ill prepared. Um, and I'm with Ben on this. I, I hope he watches this and takes it as constructive criticism. He's, Seems like a pretty decent guy. Um, I don't have anything personal against him. I know Dan doesn't. And um, we just want to we want to keep it in the intellectual sphere and attack it there. And that's I think we've done a pretty good job of that. And um, anybody who would take something else from this, uh, email me. We'll reevaluate it and see if we made some mistakes along the way or not. But um other than that, I'd like to let you two uh, plug your stuff to close out. Cool. Ben, you can go first. Yeah. So um, check out Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. Um, we have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter page. We have an Instagram. Um, so check us out. We're on all the social medias and podcast outlets, whatever your favorite one happens to be. And um, stay tuned for more um, content. We're going. We've got some exciting interviews lined up um, for the future. Um, so stay tuned. Then, uh, then you can catch me at Exploring Reality. I'm on YouTube, on TikTok. Um, I'm working on a website as well. Um, yeah, that's about that's about it. I'll, that's all I'll add. And I just again, I want to say thank you to Eddie and Ben. It's just. It's super humbling to me that two like super smart people um, wanted to talk to somebody like me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not well, near the level you guys are at. So I just really appreciate being able to soak in the knowledge. Yeah, I, I so I mean I do appreciate that, but um, uh, I I think you're being a bit uh, <laughs> a, a little strong with your words. I don't know about at the level of knowledge that, <laughs> for that. I would say. Uh, but we're, you know, we're all in this to learn more and to present our arguments better. And, um, yeah, I, I definitely I appreciate you, Dan, coming on and willing to expose um, your arguments, your positions uh, in the debate, you know, from the debate and, and be open to that criticism. That, that says a lot to your intellectual honesty and humility. And, Ben, I really appreciate you reaching out and wanting to do this and give a good, honest uh, assessment and, you know, kind of give us some better retorts, you know, kind of the things we would have expected to begin with. So thank both of you guys for 
uh, coming on and doing this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I'm going to put you guys in the back, tell everybody bye. I'll be back there in a minute. Cool. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, I have a couple of shows coming up. I've got Russ Schaefer Landau. It's going to be the 28th. And I have Stephen Law is going to be coming on. Uh, we haven't nailed down a date yet, but it's going to be in November for sure. And again, thank you, Than. Thank you, uh, Ben. Their links uh, is in the description. Make sure you check their stuff out. Uh, both of them have very good content. Uh, very cool guys. Very humble. And thank you, everybody, again, for coming out. <laughs>